And the rest of us are in Exodus chapter 9. We're going to pick up at verse 13. And we want to start today with uh, a story from the Chicago Tribune. Maybe you didn't know this, but Kevin Baugh has his own country, and it's called the Republic of Malasia. His preferred title is His Excellency Kevin Baugh. He wears a khaki uniform with six big medals and a gold braid, epaulets at the shoulders, and a blue and white and green sash with a general's cap with a gold star burst on the bill. Now I want you to meet Kevin. So we have a little video clip. You get to meet Kevin right here. This is President Kevin Ball of the Republic of Malaysia. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. President Ball, this is Marge from the Malaysia Trading Company. Listen, your new jacket came in, but it's pink. That's not right, is it? And what do I feed this walrus? Call me back. So the Republic of Malaysia is a real place. And if you've not heard of it, it's not surprising because it consists of Kevin's three-bedroom home on his 1.3 acres just outside of Dayton, Nevada. His Excellency Kevin Ball has a space program, and you saw that. It's one model rocket. He has a national currency pegged to chocolate chip cookie dough. Malasia has a national sport, and you saw that also, it's broom ball. Malasia has a navy, though the country is landlocked, and you saw that, it's an inflatable boat. And uh, Kevin Ball is what has been called a micro-nationalist. He's a do-it-yourself nation builder. Now, His Excellency Kevin Ball takes all of this as a, a fun joke, he calls it the kingdom of me. Now, although the Republic of Malaysia may be harmless fun, it's a great reminder of a problem that we face, and it's called the kingdom of me, which is about my kingdom and my needs and my wants and my desires. This was a very serious problem for the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, And we've seen that beginning in Exodus chapter 4. And it goes all the way through chapter 20. The instructions for the king, and you have a program, uh, you have an outline in your program and you can follow. We're at verses 13 through 19, the instructions for the king. And so we pick up at verse 13, and here's the setting for our story today. Uh, When the Pharaoh came into power in the 15th century BC, the Israelites were living in Upper Egypt 
called the land of Goshen. The problem that Pharaoh had with the low-life Israelites at this time is that they were growing so fast that in his mind they were becoming a threat to his existence. He feared that they might rise up because they were so numerous that they might rebel against the, uh, against the Egyptians and outnumber them and overtake them. He was also concerned that uh, if an invading army came through the borders of Egypt, that the Israelites might join them and uh, multiply Pharaoh's potential problem and overrun all the Egyptians. So Pharaoh decided to control his problem by, fix, by putting the Israelites to hard labor. And you remember uh, the story. And then uh, he brought them into slavery, a forced uh, work for the Egyptians. And God's people cried out to their God, and God heard them, and God answered them, and God raised up a deliverer for God's people, and his name was Moses. But this didn't happen very fast, did it? God had a plan, and it meant that God's people needed to be patient. And God used Moses to bring plagues on Egypt. And these judgments of God were against the gods of Egypt, and they were designed to, one by one, show the power of the true and living God. There was a Nile river that turned to blood. There were the frogs on the land everywhere to show Pharaoh who the true and living God is. There was a plague of gnats. There was the plague of flies. There was a plague of livestock. And this time, this plague was only on the Egyptians. There was a plague of boils, those oozing sores on just the Egyptians. Today we come to the seventh plague. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and he's done this before, and say to him, this is what the Lord God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. So this is not new. Uh, You know, Moses could have said, well, Lord, I don't think this is going to work. We've already seen this is not working. And what good is it for me to go? Uh, why don't you, why do we have to do this? You know, Moses could have come up with his own excuses, but it was good for Moses that he just gets up and does what God says. And the message to Pharaoh would be, let my people go so that they may worship me. And by the way, a little reminder for us, Why do you think God set us free from the slavery of sin? Why do you think he let us go from slavery to sin? The answer is right there. So that we might worship him. God is raising up true worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth, who bring glory to the Father. So we come to verse 14. We see the warning. And... God says, let my people go, verse 14, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. And you recall that when God began to release his power toward Egypt against the gods of Egypt for the sake of Pharaoh, he sort of just started out with some bothersome things that made the Egyptians uncomfortable. And then they begin to increase in intensity, and they begin to increase in focus. 
And now for the very first time, God says, I will bring the full force of my plagues against you. God's getting serious about this. He's going to send his full force. Very strong warning. And God is just warming up, by the way. And the reason is, he also says, the reason, so that Pharaoh will know. So that Pharaoh's officials will know. So that Pharaoh's people will know just who the true and living God is. Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. So that he would be known in all the earth. That's the heart of God. He wants his name known in all the earth. And, you know, that's why he's raised us up, too, so that his name might be known in all the earth. That's why Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God wants his name to be known everywhere. He wants his reputation to be known. The purpose of 15 For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague. That would have wiped you off the earth. So God is speaking seriously to Pharaoh. God could have just zapped Pharaoh and all the Egyptians with one breath, one word, in an instant of time, and they're all dead. And some of us would have voted for that. God, that would be a good way to do it. Why don't you just save time and save us trouble? Verse 16. God says to Pharaoh, but I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God raised up his excellency, King Pharaoh of Egypt for a purpose. To show his name, to make his name known, by the way, for all generations, for all time. Here we are, 3,500 years later learning about what God did to Pharaoh and learning about Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's choices and Pharaoh's decisions. To show God's power, to proclaim my name in all the earth. The hailstorm, verses 17 through 19, we see the reason, verse 17. You still set yourself against my people, Pharaoh, and you will not let them go. So God is just reminding Pharaoh that it's because his heart is obstinate and because he refuses God's request, now comes the hailstorm. Verse 18, therefore, at this time tomorrow, because God wants him to know that it's related to God's word, to God's decision, to God's judgment. At this time tomorrow, you want to know when it's going to happen? At this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. And once again, God is going to use the created order. He is the one who created the universe. He created the land. He is in charge of the weather. And our insurance policies call it the act of God. That's exactly what's going to happen right here. There's going to be no insurance to cover this. Verse 19, we see a test. And and here's what he tells Pharaoh. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still in the field and they will die. Now, God is telling Pharaoh 
All you have to do is bring your livestock in. All you have to do is get your people in. You need to get them into safety. You need to get them into protection. God is giving them an opportunity to pay attention to his word. The big question is, what do you do when God speaks? That's their problem here. God's speaking. He's giving them an opportunity. He's telling them what, where to find safety, where to find deliverance. And they have an opportunity to respond back to God. And by the way, that's what God initiates. And he wants us to respond in faith. God initiates and he wants us to respond in worship. It's about his initiation. He does that through revelation. And he wants us to respond back in faith. It's exactly what he's doing right here. This is an extension of grace. This is God's favor. He's making a way of escape for this group of people. It's not because they deserve it. And we see the implementation for the king in verses 20 through 26. Verse 20. First, it's those who believed. There was a group of Egyptians who were aware of what God said to Pharaoh and that Pharaoh promised, if you just come in for safety, you will be protected. You need to get out of the open. You need to get into a building. And here's a group of people who began to respect what God said. They began to believe what God, would, God said would happen. They believed that Pharaoh would be helpless before God. Here was a group of people who were beginning to get this concept of trust. Verse 20. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. That's not a very big act of faith, is it? You know that something terrible is coming, and so you go for safety. By the way, this is not about eternal salvation. This... Uh, this is just about, okay, you want to trust what God said? Here's, a, here's an opportunity for you to take a step of faith and learn about faith. And so they did. And guess what? God's word was true and it was trustworthy and they could count on it. And by the way, later in the story, when Israel makes that exodus and they leave Egypt, there are going to be some Egyptians go with them because of this. Because they're beginning to trust God. They're beginning to believe that God is who he said he, he would be. Verse 21, those who do not believe, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. They showed God that they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid of his words. They weren't afraid of his warnings. And they weren't afraid of his hail. The implementation, verses 22 through 25 then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. Verse 23, when Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. This was a uh, light show and this was a sound show. This was loud thunder and bright lightning. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt Hail, fail, and lightning flashed back and forth. It was a gr the worst storm in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. And that means they were killed. It struck them down. It was fatal. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. 
This was an extremely powerful storm. Thunder, lightning, and hail. It was a light and sound show for the ages. It was a blow to the Egyptian economy. They were going to lose their fields. They were losing their animals. People were killed. Crops were destroyed. And you know what? The hailstorm demonstrated God's power over the Egyptian god Seth, the god of winds and storms who could not stop God bringing a hailstorm. Pharaoh's gods are just continually beaten down. Verse 26, but there is a distinction. The only place it did not hail was on the land of Goshen where the Israelites were because, were because God protected his people. God said he would protect his people. In this case, God's people were not harmed. Now, this whole story in Exodus, we just, just keep get, getting hammered with the judgments of God one after another. And we are on number seven. So, here we go. The encouraging thing in here is God makes a distinction and he protects his people. And God makes a distinction today, by the way. He makes a distinction between his people and not his people. And he's made promises to his people that he keeps and that he will always keep. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, he forgives their sin, and he saves them from the penalty of their own sin. And he indwells them with his Holy Spirit, and he seals them uh, permanently with his Holy Spirit. And he answers the prayers of his people. And he promises to take them uh, to heaven in the future, to be with him forever. And he promises that you may experience love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and, and self-control as you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your health issues, no, no matter what your financial issues are, no matter how bad it is, He's promised these things to you and to me. And He's also made some promises to those who do not believe and who choose not to honor Him and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's promised an eternal death in the lake of fire, and that's it. So, we come to, the king begins to soften his heart. Verses 27 and 28, we come to the confession of the king. Look at the problem of confession without repentance in verse 27. Then the Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This is Amazing. He says, this time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. He seems to get it. Slowly, God is making some progress in Pharaoh's life. It sort of sounds sincere, but by the way, this is the fourth time in six plagues that Pharaoh said, stop, I will let you go. But I'm not sure it's going to ring true. Pharaoh confesses truth, but his heart is not there yet. Basically, he confesses because he's been caught in failure. He was not able to protect his own people and his own land. And his gods did not provide for him. 
and he has failed, and he has been caught in his failure. He has been caught for the choices he made. And I find that sometimes people confess easily when they're caught, but if they aren't caught, they don't confess. And they admit their failure. But confession is agreeing with God. When God says, this is a sin, you can say, yeah, that's a sin. But repentance is something else. Repentance is make a change in your heart. Uh, repentance is a plan to make, take a new course, a new direction. And repentance for, for Pharaoh would have been, yes, I have sinned, and now I submit to the true and living God, and I will follow him. That would be repentance. Verse 28, the request for prayer, prayer to the, pray to the Lord. This is what uh, Pharaoh says to Moses, pray to the Lord for we have had enough thunder and hail. He's had it up to here. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Sounds like a victory for Moses, doesn't it? Pharaoh promises to release God's people as God has asked. It all sounds pretty good. Verses 29 through 35, the answer for the king, answered prayer for the king. The promise of prayer, verse 29, Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands and pray to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you will know that the earth is the Lord's. There's a reason for this, so that you will know that the earth is the Lord's. So it's going to happen when I get out of the city. It's going to happen when I hold up my hands in prayer. It's going to happen when I ask. God is going to answer. Why? Pharaoh, so that you will know who the true and living God is. Verses 30, we see the condition of the king's heart. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. Moses gets that Pharaoh is still up to his old tricks. Pharaoh is still trying to control and manipulate the outcome. Sort of like, okay, I need to stop the hailstorm. Now I've got the hailstorm stopped. All I had to do is say the right words to Moses. Moses made it happen. And now we're safe again. But he's not ready to face up to the true and living God. He's still trying to control, still trying to manipulate. You know, in that way, Pharaoh's like some of us. Some of us want to control the outcomes of our lives. Even as followers of Christ, we're not sure that God really knows what he's doing. We like to control. We like to make things happen, make things turn out the way we want them to turn out. Sometimes we want to give God advice on what he should do and what problems he should fix and how he should bless us. In verses 31 and 32, we see the extent of the hailstorm. The flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. This is a little minor detail. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. Little details. Uh, kind of a little, little, little information that, that, that an accurate historian puts in to clarify the situation. There's certain crops that have been destroyed that now, this time of year, will not bear fruit this year. But there's some crops that are still in the ground, and they're going to bear fruit later. So when we say that all of it was destroyed, please understand this. A little detail the writer wants us to be aware of. 
Verse 33, the prayer. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city, just like he said. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The Lord, the thunder and the hail stopped. And the rain no longer poured down on the earth. Moses prayed. God answered. Now the, the ball is back in Pharaoh's court. What will he do? How will he really respond? Verses 34 and 35. We see this self-focused life. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Pharaoh just can't get away from this kingdom of me. He does not want to give up his place as God as the God and king of Egypt. That's his role. He is the God of Egypt. He is the king of Egypt. And he doesn't want to give that up. He doesn't want to admit his failure. He doesn't want to expose his weakness. So Pharaoh has revised his course again, and he's refused to obey God's command to let his people go. That's Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 35. Here are some lessons for us to think about. First of all, sometimes God uses pain and suffering to get people to pay attention to his instructions. Sometimes God uses pain and suffering. It's exactly what he did in Egypt. And that's what we're, we're finding. In the first plagues, they were on all people in Egypt, Israelites as well as Egyptians. It was difficult for the Israelites as well as the Egyptians. And they get more intense and more focused. And the circumstances were pretty miserable. And God was using circumstances to get the attention of people, to pay attention to what he was doing, to pay attention to what he said, and to listen and to obey. And sometimes we see God do that. Scripture tells us that God uses circumstances in our lives to help us grow. One of those key passages is Hebrews chapter 12. And the writer of Hebrews says, Are you And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? So this is meant to be an encouragement. And we have a tendency just to see this as negative and harmful and hurtful and uncomfortable. And the writer wants us to see something good here. He says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Next slide. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone who accepts his son. He accepts as his son. So sometimes when we're disobedient, God can use circumstances to get our attention. But one of the key concepts in this passage is it's not all about when we're disobedient. Because sometimes we're walking with God and we're right where he wants us to be and discipline comes on us or difficult circumstances come on us. And what the writer of Hebrews tells us is this is training. God is training you. God wants you to trust him. God is going to develop you. It's going to be good for you. It's going to lead to righteousness. 
And you know what? Um, hard circumstances come on people who believe and people who don't believe. And it's not because, like, you're a Christian, you get more hard circumstances. No, it's not true. I don't think it's true at all. We just have hope in ours. We have hope that something good could come out of them. God isn't all about making us happy. He's way more interested in making us holy. And this is part of training. Discipline is a good word for training. It's like child training. Kids, kids need help. They need instruction. They need direction. Sometimes they need to be admonished, encouraged, affirmed. And God does that. When he trains us. Second lesson. God's plans for my life are better than my plans for my life. Now I doubt if the Israelites would have signed off on this. You know, God had this plan to use ten plagues on Egypt. And that meant they got to experience the plagues in some degree. I mean, you know, they smelled the dead frogs too. The frogs came in their house. And they had the gnats. And this just seemed to go on and on. There's no hurry up here. Yet God's plans for my life are better than my plans for my life. I think the Israelites would have wanted to come up with a simple plan. One event, one day, total deliverance, no discomfort. It's gone. It's done. That wasn't God's plan. Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 11 reminds us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Next slide. Next slide. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making its blood bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Next slide. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. I will, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve for the purpose for which I've sent it. This is a good reason for you and me to trust God. Because he's not limited by our thought patterns and our baggage from our past. He's not limited by our view He's not limited by our experience. He's not limited by our wisdom. He knows more than all of us combined. He knows, has more knowledge than all of the earth combined. From all of history, this is why we can trust God. He is not left with my lack of foresight or my weaknesses or my self-centeredness. He will accomplish this. His purposes. He's going to accomplish his purposes with justice, with mercy, with compassion, with grace, and with righteousness, just to name a few. He is in charge. He's working things for good. And he will never be short sighted. His ways are not my ways. Third lesson remember, obedience is a choice. It's a pretty simple lesson. But we often get stuck in the whirlwind of our emotions, how I feel about something. I may feel sad. I may feel compassionate. I may feel desperate. I may feel hopeless. I may feel overwhelmed. I may feel stressed. I may feel lonely. And 
The danger is this, I just act out of how I feel about it rather than what God says or my trust in him and, and my desire to follow his course. Jesus makes it very simple for us in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's a choice. You know, one of the most practical things about premarital counseling and talking about wedding vows, wedding vows are a choice. I, I commit to you my love. It doesn't depend on the circumstances. It doesn't de- depend on your health or my health or your finances or my finances. I choose to be committed to you this day and tomorrow. And tomorrow I get up and I choose my, to commit my love to my wife. It's a choice. Following Jesus is the same way. Day after day, it's a choice. It's, I like John, uh, Joshua 24, verse 15. Joshua comes to a crucial point in the history of Israel, and he says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable, because sometimes I think you and I are tempted to think serving the Lord is undesirable, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And strong call for obedience. And he's calling God's people to step up and step across the line. Are you going to obey? Are you going to be back there? Undecided. One of the great concepts for me, when you think about, is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Does this help you when you think in terms, yes, Jesus is Lord. He's the master. I'm the servant. Well, if you have decided that Jesus is Lord, why do you have to stop and think about every sin you face? If he's the master, the goal there is do what the master says. Do you need to realign your heart so that Jesus is the Lord of your life? Instead of making each little temptation, a decision you have to make, well, am I going to obey today or not? Yes, I'm going to obey. I've already decided. Jesus is my Lord. Why would I not obey? And uh, number four, God is not interested in you taking his place. God is not interested in you taking his place. I know that you already know that, but it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking you could run the universe better than God. Pharaoh definitely thought he could run the universe better than God. Exodus 20, verse 3. We've seen this verse several times. It's pretty important. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, for first century Israel, it was actual idols with demons behind them, and they actually were tempted to bow down before the idol on the ground and worship the idol and talk to the idol as if the idol was God. We're we're way more intelligent of that. God is not interested in you being one of his script writers on how you have better plans than his. God is not impressed with our greatness or our power or our authority. 
God is not interested in creating a church made up of people focusing on the kingdom of me. Last lesson, be careful when you oppose God. Be careful when you oppose God because it's pretty risky. And Pharaoh found that out when he opposed God. Life is hard enough, even as a Christ follower, life is hard enough without trying to swim upstream spiritually against God. Um, Peter's instructions to the church are a really good reminder for us and a good way to close. First Peter chapter 5, he says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit to yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's a key concept. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. It's about being humble, not thinking of ourselves too highly. And there it's, it says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. My life is hard enough without opposing God. You know, and, and when I am proud, and when I think I'm calling the shots, when I think my ideas are better than his, I'm, I'm swimming upstream spiritually. But God gives grace to the humble, and that's what I need. I need grace. I need God's favor. I need God's blessing. I need his strength on my life and what I do. And the scripture says God gives grace to the humble. Next slide. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. He knows we are frail. He knows we're breakable. Cast all of our anxiety and what we worry about and our stress. Let him be our God. So here's what we found out today. Pharaoh is all about the kingdom of me, Jesus died to free us from the kingdom of me. And we're going to worship him right now and remember that he died for us with a time of communion. So I'm going to ask those who are going to serve us to please come and um, get our communion ready. When we share in a time of communion, we're reminded that Jesus died and he paid the price for us. When we hold the bread in our hand, it's a symbol and it's a reminder of Jesus' body given for us. He actually experienced death. And when we take the cup, we uh, are reminded that the, blood is a that, that the cup is a symbol of his blood. And we are to remember the cost of our salvation. Jesus died so we wouldn't face the consequences for the kingdom of me in a serious way. Not in a light and funny way, but in a serious way. So, um, Scripture says that we ought to examine ourselves. And here's how we're going to do it. Um, I'm going to pray and thank God for uh, the bread and the cup, just as the Scripture instructs us. And then whenever you're ready, I'm going to invite you to come forward. We're going to have two stations up here, and you can get the bread and the cup, and then you can go back to your seat, and you can just take uh, the bread and the cup, the communion, whenever you're ready. But Scripture says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. I don't often focus on this, but we just need to be reminded of this. Verse 28 says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread or drinks of the cup. Or a woman ought to examine herself before she drinks, for she eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so the point of all that is God cares about our hearts. He cares about our attitudes. And he wants to make sure our hearts are spiritually cleansed. And so uh, what we do is we just pause and we reflect before God. Is there anything that you and I need to confess to him? And we have a promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. God wants us to make sure that we're focused on his kingdom and not about the kingdom of me. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, humble ourselves today before you, and we thank you that you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We thank you that he was willing to be humble, that he was willing to sacrifice his life and his wants and his desires that he was willing to go to the cross, that he was willing to die for us, to take our place, to be our substitute, to be the atonement for sin. And today we just say, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, we think about the bread and we say, thank you. And we think about the cup and we say, thank you. Because the cup represents his blood. And it reminds us that he gave his life and that real blood flowed from his veins and he really died. The good news is he didn't remain dead, but he was raised again to a new life. And that your spirit raised him up and gave us the resurrection And that you offer the same power of the resurrection to to help us walk day by day with you. And we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you're ready, please uh, come.